All right. Well, uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Redeemer. Um, as Brian said, my name is Kevin Tapscott. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and thank you. Thank you for joining us this morning. We're going to be excited here in the next two, three weeks just uh, to see more faces, whether they're familiar faces or new faces, just as OSU is starting back and people are coming back into town and getting back into the swing of things here. So I'm glad that you are here this morning. <clears throat> So this year, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, we took a break um, partially through the summer to look at the book of Ephesians, but we've been going through 1 Corinthians. In the last few weeks, we've been in chapters 8 through 10, which has been an extended discussion on um, the unique and seemingly weird uh, situation and issue, seemingly weird to us, of food sacrifice to idols. But um, we've seen that it's taught us a lot about the nature of Christian freedom, what it means to glorify God with our freedom, to love and serve those around us. And as Brian just read, it kind of culminates. One of the main points Paul is making this is in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So this means that because of who God is, what he's done in history, what he has done in Christ, that he is deserving of praise and honor. He is to be recognized for his holiness and perfection. He is to be exalted for sending his son to this earth, for saving sinners who place their faith in him. And us, as his people, the people of God, we are to reflect his glory in everything. And while I think we would all agree, yes, we should do all to the glory of God, I think we can be confused. What does that mean? What does that look like? We get how coming to church, singing worship songs this morning, we get how that glorifies God. We get how preaching the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus with someone else, we get how that glorifies God. But the reality is, is there are innumerable ways that we can glorify God. Even in the little details, the trivial, mundane things of everyday life, we can glorify God. So I want us to think about the glory of God as kind of a beautiful, rare diamond. So uh, I have learned in the last year or so, when picking out a diamond, you want to look at the four C's. Color, clarity, carrot, and cut. And so uh, looking at cut, the better a diamond has been cut, the better it is able to reflect and to refract light. This contributes to the diamond's overall beauty. It's kind of that amazing sparkle as you turn and rotate the diamond in the light and the light captures every form and facet of the diamond. So um, imagine the, the best, most beautiful, breathtaking diamond that you can. Hit all four C's, the cut is incredible. Now imagine cutting off the end or the edge of that diamond. This would be a, a truncated diamond. This would be a diamond that has been truncated. It's been cut short. Part of the diamond that captured its sparkle, contributed to the diamond's overall beauty, is now cut off. And so this is the same thing that happens to God's glory when we believe or preach a truncated gospel. This is a gospel that is less than what the gospel actually is because parts of the gospel truth are cut off. Or all the ways that we are to apply the gospel in everyday life, those things are cut off. A truncated gospel is not the full gospel. And it cuts off some of the glory that God fully deserves. So if we want to do all to the glory of God, we need to make sure that he receives maximum glory. And to do that, we need to understand the true gospel. We need to understand how it applies to everyday life, even the seemingly small and insignificant portions of our daily life. Because to glorify God should be the goal of every Christian. And ultimately, that's what Paul is trying to do here 
in 1 Corinthians. He's trying to, in verses, or excuse me, in chapters 8 through 10, help the Corinthians see how, in the issue of food sacrifice to idols, how they can glorify God. And it's, as we've been talking about, it's a unique situation. It's kind of weird to us here in the 21st century. It doesn't have a, a very clear black and white answer. And Paul, he doesn't want to preach a truncated gospel. He doesn't want to rob God of glory in how to think of this issue. So he doesn't say to the Corinthians, no, 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 you can never eat that food. Nor does he say, yeah, you're free. Eat the food sacrificed to idols whenever you want. Rather, Paul uses wisdom and humility and love for others to have a more nuanced response. Because this means upholding the full gospel. It means maximum glory for God. And maximum glory for God should be our motivation in everything that we do. So let's look closer at Paul's conclusion on this matter of food sacrifice idols and what it means for us and how we can glorify God in our daily lives. So starting off in verses 23 through 24, the first thing we see is that we glorify God when we understand our true freedom in Christ. These verses read, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So Paul, he quotes a commonly accepted phrase that the Corinthians believed. All things are lawful for me, or all things are permissible for me. Basically, I'm free to do anything. He quoted this, this belief, this slogan of theirs, back in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, because they apparently believed this and applied it to the issue of sexual desires, and they were engaging in, in sexual immorality and prostitution. And Paul says, no, 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 flee sexual immorality. But it was the same felt freedom and the desire to act in accordance with one's perceived rights that was informing the approach of the Corinthians to the issue of food sacrifice to idols. Basically, the Corinthians, they felt that they were free and free to eat food sacrifice to idols whenever that they want. But Paul, he's going to go on, he's going to qualify this slogan of theirs that they're believing, and he's going to give his conclusion on the matter. But it is true that Christ has set free those who place their faith in him. Tyler read it a couple weeks ago, but Paul says in Galatians 5.13, For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Free from what? Free from slavery to sin, from the destruction and death and separation of, from God that results from our sin. All those who put their faith in Christ and his work at the cross, they are forgiven and set free. And Christians, we are to live in accordance with our freedom in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. It glorifies God when sinners receive forgiveness from God, when they receive freedom from Christ and walk in that freedom daily because this is pointing to what Christ has won for believers at the cross. And the cross is the apex of God's glory because this is where the entire grand story of the Bible is pointing to, Jesus and the cross. Because it's at the cross that we see the love and grace and goodness and kindness and justice of God on full display. God's love accomplished for us what we can never accomplish for ourselves and what we didn't deserve. We do not deserve the love and kindness of God, but he lavishes them upon us anyways. The love of God sent Christ to the cross on our behalf to bear our sin and shame so that we could be forgiven and saved and reconciled to this holy God through faith in Jesus. To believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to be freed from sin and death, and to testify to his love and grace and kindness in Christ every single day. These things bring God glory. And living in this freedom means that we no longer try to perfectly obey the law 
to earn or to keep our salvation because we can never do that. But more importantly, Christ's perfection, his perfect obedience is enough. We are free from the curse of the law. This freedom that we have in Christ means resting in the fact that we are reconciled to God. We are his adopted son or daughter. He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, and we get to delight in him. As his children, he fully loves, approves of us, and accepts us because of Jesus. And this freedom means that the things in our lives that we are ashamed of no longer have power over us because Christ bore our sin and shame. There is no guilt or shame or fear or condemnation for those who are in Christ because we are free. And the freedom that Christ won for us at the cross, at the cross this glorifies God. But this freedom does not mean that we are free to do whatever we want. We glorify God by using our freedom for the good of others. The Corinthians, they thought they were free to do anything. But Paul says that is not true. He's already said their freedom does not mean that they are free to engage in sexual immorality or idolatry. Those are clearly sins. And he says that people who live their lives engaging in these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. So our freedom in Christ never means freedom to sin. But we do have freedom in many ways. But Paul, he, he qualifies this, and he says that he, he qualifies it to say that um, our freedom is um, something that we need to take and serve to use, other, or use to serve others to help them, to build them up. Not everything we do is beneficial for ourselves, nor does it always edify us or others and contribute to our well-being in Christ. But Paul here, he's saying he's getting graver, greater emphasis towards considering how we can use our freedom and actions to contribute towards the well-being of others. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And I think that this does such a good job of capturing a biblical social ethic. It's related to the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Because the Christian life is unequivocally others-focused. When we preach or believe a gospel that focuses more on us, our freedoms, our rights, rather than on loving others and seeking the well-being and flourishing of others in Christ, we believe a truncated gospel. This others-focused life is the fruit of, belie of believing the true gospel of Jesus and brings the most glory to God because this is what Christ did for us. He didn't come to this earth to indulge in his rights and freedoms or to wield his rights and freedoms to the neglect or even harm of others. Jesus exclusively used his rights and freedoms to serve others and to build them up, to bring the kingdom of God and call people to repentance and trust in him so that they could enter into this kingdom, to care for people, to meet their needs, to heal the sick. We seek the good of our neighbor and not our own because that is what Jesus did for us. And if he had not done that for us, we would still be lost in our sins. And this is what Paul goes on to say in Galatians 5.13. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. It is in our sinful human nature to think of ourselves more than others, to seek our own good rather than the good of our neighbor. But Christ calls us to a different way because it's the better way. It is the way that brings God the most glory. It is the way that blesses and benefits others the most as we both proclaim the gospel to them and also meet their needs and contribute to their good and flourishing every single day. 
This is the proper way to use our freedom. But a truncated gospel will focus on our rights and our freedoms and our comforts to the neglect or even to the harm of others. Meeting people's practical daily needs, bringing about justice in the flourishing of others is not a substitute for verbally proclaiming the saving message of Jesus, but the two should always go hand in hand. We lessen the beauty of the gospel. We rob God of glory when we don't tangibly care for the orphan, the poor, the widow, the immigrant, the refugee, and the marginalized, in addition to preaching the gospel. When we tell others to just preach the gospel without living out the practical implications and applications of the gospel in our mercy and compassion for others. When we hear the voices of others crying out injustice and we overlook them or seek to discredit them because, well, they're a cultural Marxist and we don't actually listen to them and strive to pursue justice for others. When we are brash or arrogant, harsh, mean, or even hateful when talking about others who believe things differently than us. When we are willing to sacrifice the health and well-being of others for the sake of our personal comforts or preferences. I think that this is something that has been happening a lot lately, as we have been talking about here at Redeemer, a lot in the last year. And there's a lot of different motivations that people might give for, for why they might be acting this way or using their freedoms in this way, treating others in this way. But at some point you have to wonder if it isn't just to maintain the comfort of certain Christians, to ease their consciences, because ultimately caring for others, seeking their good, pursuing justice, these things are uncomfortable. We absolutely must preach the gospel to others for there is no other way for them to be saved. But if we have believed this gospel, it will change how we view and treat and relate to and care for others. Jesus, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. God receives glory when we freely proclaim the gospel to others and they receive Christ and enjoy the freedom that they have in Christ. And he also receives glory when we freely do good works and seek the good of others because that is what Christ has done for us. And next, Paul, he's going to get into his conclusion on the matter. What should the Corinthians do in the relationship of food sacrifice to idols? And he will show us that it glorifies God to wisely nuance our applications of the gospel to every, everyday life. And I'll explain what that means. But verses 25 through 30. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So the main point in Paul's conclusion of whether or not to eat food sacrificed to idols has to do with not creating an opportunity for others to think that Christians are participating in or condoning idolatry. This is why he gives these different scenarios and when it is okay to eat food sacrificed to idols and when it's not okay. 
this issue in this whole conversation, ultimately, Paul is saying, is not about the food itself. It's not about the meat. For as Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, an idol is nothing in the world. There is no God but one. God is the one true God. And the supposed gods behind the idols were not really gods, but demonic powers, Paul says. So the Christian should beware of eating this meat when it's taking part in a pagan worship service or in a meal to honor the pagan gods, because in that, Paul says, they are participating with the demonic spirits behind this idolatry. But the food itself that has been offered to these idols is not corrupted. It's not going to corrupt the Christian merely by eating this food. So, he says, there are certain situations when it's completely fine to eat this food that had been sacrificed to idols. But he says that the bigger concern is how exercising this freedom should be to help and build up both believers and non-believers. And so Paul, in his application or his conclusion of this, he points to the two most common instances where a Christian might come into contact with food sacrificed to idols in the marketplace and uh, when eating dinner at a friend's house. He says, in those situations, there's no need to ask if any of the food has been offered as a sacrifice to an idol, because even if it had, the food is not tainted. He says that the food is part of God's blessing and provision for that person. And quotes Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's saying that God is Lord of the entire world, not these pagan gods. God created all things for his glory and all plants and animals and, and food belong to him. All food is to be recognized as a good gift from a benevolent God who provides for our needs. So the Christian or the Corinthian Christians, they, they need not worry about the food if it was potentially sacrificed to idols. They can eat it with a clean Christian conscience. But, Paul says, if in the marketplace or at a dinner party with a friend, if someone makes it explicitly known that the food was offered to an idol, then the Christian should not eat it because this could be misconstrued by others as a participation in or a condoning of paganism and idolatry. But for the Corinthians, there were, there were good reasons to go to, to dinner parties at a friend's house. And it was ultimately frowned upon culturally to decline an invitation. But there were almost always religious elements that a, that a Christian in this context would have to navigate. If there was a song sung at dinner to a pagan god, they were not to participate. If there was the name of a pagan god invoked to bless the wine or the food that they were about to eat, then the Christian should bless the food or the wine in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul says, otherwise, they, they could eat. They could enjoy their time. They could do all this to God's glory. But it was possible that someone might make it known to them that some of the food was explicitly offered as a sacrifice to an idol. This could be maybe they just wanted to see what the Christian would do. Or it might be to warn the Christian because they see, okay, you Christians, you disagree with idolatry. You probably don't want to eat this food that has been sacrificed to idols then. In these cases, the Christian should not eat the food for the sake of the conscience of the one who told them and the others around who heard and who witnessed. And he tells us why in the form of two rhetorical questions. He says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness... Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And I think on the face of it, it seems like Paul in these questions is contradicting what he just said, but it, actually he's explaining his point. Paul is saying that in these instances, if a Christian were to eat the food sacrificed to idols, then the non-Christian who heard might determine or judge them unfavorably, or that they might be denounced or spoken of in a way that demeans and respects them and the gospel. 
Basically, what Paul is saying is that others might criticize Christians for eating food sacrificed to idols because it would appear to them that Christians are hypocrites because they reject idolatry, and yet they're eating food sacrificed to idols. So it would seem as if they're doing something immoral. Or because, that, because of the Christian partaking in this act, the non-Christian would believe that paganism and idolatry are acceptable because the Christian is eating this food sacrificed to idols as well. For, the word for at the beginning of the first question can be interpreted for what reason? Or as one commentator put it, what good end will be served by? Meaning that eating this food might cause non-Christians to look down upon the Christian for doing something hypocritical or immoral. And this would lead the non-Christian to look down upon the gospel, to look down upon Christians. So why would a Christian want to do that? For what reason would that be beneficial? What good end would it serve, is what Paul is saying. It would hinder the proclamation and advancement of the gospel. Paul is saying that he doesn't even give others the opportunity to think that about him or Christianity because in the instances where it's been made known, hey, this food has been sacrificed to idols, he does not participate. He does not eat it. Because Paul is primarily concerned about the gospel message, not his rights, not his freedoms, and not his comforts. He wants others to come near to Christ, not to be pushed away because they think that Christians are hypocrites or because they think, well, there's no need to accept Jesus because these Christians are worshiping the same pagan gods that I do. And Paul, he's very nuanced in his approach to this issue and how he applies the gospel to it. He doesn't just say yes. He doesn't just say no to the issue of food sacrifice to idols, but he says it depends. And ultimately, this approach brings God the most glory because the Christian is able to operate in their Christian freedom and they are able to enjoy God's provision and the gospel is commended to unbelievers and it is not looked down upon or criticized. God's glory is upheld because no one is perceiving God to share glory with these pagan gods because, well, the Christians, they're, they're refraining. They're not eating this meat sacrificed to idols. No one's going to think that these Christians are also worshiping these other gods. So God's glory is upheld. And there's the added benefit of there's opportunities for the Christian to share the gospel with their pagan neighbors who ask them, well, why aren't you coming to dinner? I invited you. Or when they ask them, well, there's this food for you to eat, but it was that sacrifice to idols, and you said you don't want to eat it. Why not? In those instances, the Christian can share the good news of Jesus Christ. So in this approach, in this application of the gospel to the issue of food sacrifice to idols, the gospel is fully upheld and God fully glorified. But having a nuanced understanding and application of the gospel to everyday life is difficult. We would rather a, a black and white or an all or nothing approach. Either eat the food sacrificed to idols or don't eat the food sacrificed to idols. But either one of those answered would mean sacrificing some of the gospel and sacrificing some of God's glory. Many things in our life and in our world require a nuanced understanding and a nuanced application of the gospel. Because ultimately, the Bible does not speak to literally every situation. So we need to study God's word. We need to pray. We need to use wisdom to know how the good news of Jesus most applies to any given situation or topic so that God receives the most glory possible. I, I learned about this and was confronted with this a little bit in seminary because I was in a class which basically every week was just a cohort discussion. And we would be presented with a, a scenario or a case study and we would talk about, okay, what does the Bible have to say to this situation? 
in light of what the Bible says, how should we understand this? How should we respond or encourage someone in light of the gospel and in light of this situation? And for me, it was really challenging. These were spiritual muscles that I had never exercised before. And so I was quiet. I didn't want to say the wrong thing or look dumb. And the, the guy who was leading our group at the end of the semester, he, he commented on that. Because it was difficult to understand how the gospel applied to these situations that were nuanced and how to live that out in everyday life. Being nuanced in our application of the gospel to everyday life, it can be difficult. But it is worth the effort to go stronger in this area. And we do this by faithfully studying scripture. Seeking to understand culture, what's going on in our world. Discussing these things with fellow Christians in light of what the Bible teaches praying for wisdom and understanding and grace to faithfully apply the truth of the gospel to our lives as we are trying to honor and glorify the name of Jesus in every thought, word, and action of our lives. But learning to do this requires time and requires humility and patience. But it's worth it because of the potential pitfalls that arise from an either or or all or nothing approach. Because these kinds of approaches Make it easier for others to look down upon Christians or demean the gospel because we are cutting short the truth of the gospel or how it applies to everyday life. Because when we take this either or all or nothing approach to everyday life and how we apply the gospel to it, we can think that being faithful to the gospel means, well, we either have to be a Republican or we have to be a Democrat. Or we have to adhere to capitalism or socialism, woke or anti-woke. We believe it has to be either compassion for others or upholding theological conviction, either justice or mercy. But the gospel is too big and all-encompassing to be constricted within these simplistic binary systems. The gospel will be truncated and God will lose glory if we fall for this false dichotomy. And as evidenced greatly by the last year, I think others particularly non-Christians, will look down upon Christians. They will look down upon the gospel because they think that all we are doing is being selfish, unloving, uncaring hypocrites. But what Paul is saying, don't give others the opportunity to think that. Study God's word deeply to understand the full gospel message with all of its nuances and then prayerfully and wisely apply this gospel in a nuanced way to love other people well and commend the beautiful good news of Jesus to them in word and in deed. Don't just believe what your favorite pastor or professor says on Twitter. Go to the Bible. And as we do this together, not only on our own, but together, hopefully, maybe, Others will place their faith in Christ and also experience this freedom in Christ that we have experienced. Or maybe they will see our good deeds, how we love our neighbor and give glory to our Father in heaven, even if they disagree with us theologically. But may they never, ever disparage Jesus or the gospel because of us in our lives. May we live lives that glorify God and adorn the beautiful gospel message. But this will require nuance and it will require wisdom. Paul, in kind of the culmination of this in verse 31, we see that we glorify God when we live lives that are focused on the eternal glory of God. Because as he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And Paul here, he mentions eating and drinking because this is his conclusion of his long discussion on the issue of food sacrificed to idols and eating and drinking in the context of this. 
But he literally says, whether you eat, whether you drink, whether you do something else, do everything for the glory of God. His point is that what Christians should be most concerned with in life is honoring and glorifying God in all things, not exercising our rights or our freedoms. The New City Catechism, uh, it's a resource to help uh, adults and kids learn the core doctrines of the Christian faith in question and answer format. It's actually something we were using with Redeemer Kids a little while back before the pandemic. But in question six of the New City Catechism, it says, how can we glorify God? The answer, we glorify God by enjoying him, loving him, trusting him, and by obeying his will, commands, and law. We enjoy God when we desire and treasure him above everything else. When we delight in him and are satisfied in Christ alone. When the freedom that we have in Christ is far better than any worldly freedom. We love God when our heart, soul, mind, and strength is delightfully devoted to him because he has loved us first. We trust him when we recognize that he is God and he is good and he is in control at all times. Therefore, we don't need to worry or be afraid because God is with us. We obey him when we submit our entire lives to him and live as he has called us to live in his word, being holy as he is holy, representing him well in the world as his children and bringing honor and glory to his name with our every thought and word and action. Habakkuk 2.14 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's glory is displayed everywhere in creation, this earth that he has created. It's displayed in the lives of his children. It's displayed perfectly in Christ. And the glory of God will one day triumph over all evil and powers of darkness, and all things will be subsumed under the glory of God. This is where all of history is heading, and those in Christ will have the privilege of declaring the glory of God for all eternity. And so with that end in view, we are to have the eternal glory of God be the desire and motivation behind everything we do now. And so finally, Paul, he finishes this section by saying that we glorify God when we imitate Jesus. Verse 32 through 11.1. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul, he again comes back to how he lives his life to honor and glorify Christ, and he calls the Corinthians to follow his example. He's not trying to please himself, but he says he's trying to please others. But we know that Paul, he's not a people pleaser. Not, he doesn't just say and do whatever others want to please mere humans. He's a servant of Christ. He's trying to please God in everything that he does. But he knows that glorifying God means making adjustments to his life to meet the needs of his neighbor out of love for them so that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. It isn't so that he can avoid confrontation or garner praise from others, but so that God might be praised in his love for others. And this comes from a place of humility. Paul says in Philippians 2.3, In humility, consider others as more important than yourself. This is considering others being presented with an accurate picture of Jesus and the gospel and hopefully placing faith in Jesus and the gospel 
seeing these things as more important than satisfying our rights or freedoms or comforts. This humility is thinking of ourselves less so that we can think of God and others more. It is a denial of self so that we can glorify God and point others to Christ. Andrew Murray, he says in his incredibly powerful and profound, really little book, about 50 pages, uh, it's just called Humility, he says, this is the true self-denial to which our Savior calls us. The acknowledgement that self has nothing good in it, except as an empty vessel, which God must fill, and that its claim to be or do anything may not for a moment be allowed. True humility comes when, in, light, in the light of God, we have seen ourselves to be nothing, have consented to part with and cast away self to let God be all. The soul that has done this and can say, so have I lost myself in finding thee, no longer compares itself with others. It has given up forever every thought of self in God's presence. It meets its fellow men as one who is nothing and seeks nothing for itself, who is a servant of God and for his sake, a servant of all. Being a servant of God and therefore a servant of all for the sake of Christ means trying to please others and to not offend them. To offend others here is related to the word that Paul used for stumbling block back in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. And he used that there about not using our freedoms as a stumbling block to a weaker brother or sister in Christ. This is talking about causing others to stumble by putting up an obstacle in front of them. So Paul is saying, place no obstacle in front of others that might cause them to spurn Christ in the gospel and to keep them from salvation, whether they be Jew or Greek or Christian, literally, whether they be anyone. He says, seek the good of many so that they may be saved. As New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg put it, this is evangelistically motivated self-denial, denying ourselves so that others might know Jesus. But do we care enough about others' perspective of Christianity and Jesus to be willing to deny ourselves and lay down our rights? Is the gospel, the glory of God, and others being saved, is it worth that? Do our comforts and freedoms matter more? Do we believe that we live our life in a vacuum and that non-Christians aren't paying attention to our lives and drawing conclusions about Jesus and the gospel based on how we're living our lives? Because they are. And unfortunately, broad statement here, general statement, but unfortunately the broader church in America has been putting stumbling blocks in front of others coming to Christ or sometimes even just respecting Christians by how we have handled issues of racism and racial injustice, how we have bought into and perpetuated verifiably false conspiracy theories, how we have misrepresented the positions of others and harshly treated those who have different positions than we do, how we have talked about and handled issues of sexual abuse, how we have elevated our rights and our freedoms at the expense of others' health and well-being. This, of course, doesn't apply to every Christian, doesn't apply to every church, but this does happen. And these things happen when we think of ourselves more than we seek the good of our neighbor. When we don't attempt to understand and apply the gospel in a wise and nuanced way, but give in to either or thinking. And when we prize our comfort over the gospel message in the lives of others. 
I think it's safe to say that the last year plus has been very uncomfortable. If anyone was seeking comfort in any way, none of us found it. One of the ways that this has been manifested here at Redeemer is that we have made the uncomfortable decision to take serious precautions regarding COVID, given the fact that we're all masked, just like Brian was talking about before service. We did this because we want to love our neighbors well. We want to protect the health and well-being of others. But we also want to commend Jesus, commend the gospel to others by our actions and not cause anyone to think that we or Jesus does not love or care about them. So we've been outside for a really long time. And for a good chunk of that time, we were outside, we were distant, and we were masked, doing everything that we could. None of us liked it. None of us were comfortable with it. But we did the uncomfortable thing out of love for God and love for neighbor. And we've said this many times, but Redeemer, thank you for that. It was a good thing that you were doing. It was a thing that honored God, honored the gospel, loved your neighbor well. And I heard last fall a testimony from one of our members who, when they told their non-Christian friend what we were doing as a church to love and care for our neighbor in response to COVID, this person's friend replied, oh, cool, your church actually cares about people. Our efforts to not offend others, to love and care for others, to not put up a stumbling block and to glorify God at least caused this person to have a more favorable view of Christians in Jesus. And who knows how God might use that in their life. This is how we want to live our lives at all times, not just during COVID. Seeking not our own advantage, but the glory of God and the good of many. For this is what Jesus did for us. In humility, he came to this earth as a human, even though he's fully God. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death on a cross, as Philippians 2.8 tells us. And as the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53 tells us, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus came to this earth and he went to the cross for the good of many, that they might be forgiven and saved and declared righteous by God through faith in Christ. We are the recipients of the blessings and benefits of the love, humility, and self-denial of Jesus who sought our good. Therefore, we imitate him in our daily lives as we seek the good of others and seek their salvation. And in this, we are imitating the God-man, Jesus Christ. And therefore, we are bringing glory to God for his love and saving power for all those who place their faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you did not see your divinity, your equality with God, a thing to be grasped and held onto and clung to, but you ended yourself, taking the form of a servant, coming to this earth humbly as a human and humbly going all the way to the cross for our sake. Thank you for the forgiveness and salvation and life that we have through faith in you and what you have done for us. And thank you for giving us the perfect example of what it looks like to utilize our rights and our freedoms and our privileges for the eternal good of others. Lord, may you help us to know what it means and what it looks like to glorify you in everything, in every thought we have, 
in every word that we speak, in every deed, in every action, in every relationship that we have. Lord, let us glorify and honor Jesus. God, let us be quick to lay down our rights and freedoms for the glory of God and for the good of others in Christ, that they may be saved. Lord, show us the ways that we may be thinking more of ourselves than others. Show us the ways that we may be living more in pride rather than in humility, like you did, Jesus, and like you call us to. And Lord, create and cultivate within each one of us a greater passion and desire to understand the full scope of the word of God, the good news of Jesus, to know how it applies to everyday life, even if it requires a very nuanced application, and give us wisdom, Lord, to honor and glorify you and to love our neighbor for their good in Christ. So we thank you, Lord, for who you are, for the gospel of Jesus, and for the privilege of knowing you, Lord, through faith in Christ. So we pray these things in his name. Amen.